through my lips this morning to manifest the wisdom of God to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you this morning about deception. We have, for the last number of weeks, used the same text scriptures, specifically Revelation chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 24. Revelation chapter 12 identifies to us that the devil's number one overriding goal, his, his sole purpose, is to make war on the church, the people of God. The Bible tells us that the the only weapon that he has to use is deception. And that in the end times, certainly times that we live in, he's increased his activity because he knows his days are short. His time is short. And then when Jesus is talking to the disciples in Matthew chapter 24 about the end times, answering their questions about what will things be like when the end comes and when he returns the first thing that he mentions is take heed that no man deceive you. And then he talks about different events and different uh, conditions in the earth that we can expect to see and, and a lot of them we already do see. But I've been doing a lot of study and a lot of meditating on these things concerning the end times. And there was a thought that I voiced, a question that I voiced. I really wasn't asking the Lord a question I was just talking to him, and I just said, what makes the difference between somebody that's deceived and somebody that's not? I really wasn't seeking an answer. I hadn't gotten that far into my conversation with God, or, or I'm not sure exactly how to, how to describe it, but instantly I got an answer. And the Holy Ghost spoke to my heart, and he said, critical thinking. What's the difference between somebody that's deceived and somebody that's not? Critical thinking. You know as well as I do that the Bible promises, well, actually, it says that Jesus has made unto us wisdom. But then what we do with that measure of wisdom, just like what we do with the measure of the love of God that's shed abroad in our heart when we're born again, what we do with that wisdom, whether it grows, whether it diminishes or increases or whatever, depends on what we do and what attitudes we take toward the word. Jesus told us in Mark chapter 4, talking about the the parable of the sower sowing the word, that the attention that we give to the word makes all the difference in what kind of results we get. And I know that that people have been saying for a long time, and it's especially something that uh, the devil speaks to young people about the word of God not being relevant to today. Well, folks, human nature hasn't changed from the beginning of time. Human behavior hasn't changed from the beginning of of time. So how can the word of God not be relevant? I know that it's a trick of the enemy. Here again, the work of deception. To keep people from looking to the word of God for answers. But then again, it still comes back to the, the main thing, and that is critical thinking. 
Critical thinking is defined in the world as answering uh, or asking questions. And that's a good part of what critical thinking is. I, I, I question everything. I question everything. Now, by that, I don't mean I question the Word of God. But you remember when the angel appeared to, to uh, Mary and told her about becoming pregnant with Jesus. She didn't doubt the Word of God. She just asked a question, how can this be? Seeing I know not a man. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I always accept the Word of God to be true. No matter what, whether I understand it or whether I uh, can accept fully with knowledge what it's telling me. But I question everything. If I find out what, I want to know why. If I find out why, I want to know when. Critical thinking is the means whereby any individual takes the word of God and makes it their own. A lot of people read the Bible like it's a history book. Well, thank God it is a history book. But the history is there to be a blessing and, and to have something for you and me. Critical thinking, the Bible tells you a lot about what to think on. It tells us the importance of renewing our mind. But Paul said to the Ephesians, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When we renew our mind to the word, we come to the place where we accept the word of God as truth and the final word on any subject. But to be renewed in the spirit of your mind goes even further. Proverbs has always been a, a favorite book of mine. And it was something that um, I got started on early on in my, well, not really my Christian walk, but when I found out the truth of the word and found out that the Bible was given to us to be used rather than just a book that sits on the shelf. And Proverbs identifies its purpose as, to bring, uh, as bringing wisdom to the individual, the individual who reads it. But it goes even further than that because it says that it's given for us to know a proverb and the interpretation of the meaning thereof. One of the things that really surprised me when I started making Proverbs a part of my daily reading or daily meditation in the Word. And that was, I wasn't really looking for, didn't really know this is the way it worked. I wasn't looking for inside information so much as just to find out what the Word of God said. But I found out that the Holy Spirit began to show me how these things apply in situations that I was in. And he did it day after day after day. It became something that was a regular affair, something that I began to look forward to. And it helped me understand the real meaning and the real application of the word rather than just what the Bible said. There's a lot of people that know what the Bible says. But there's a big difference between that and making it real in their own lives. One of the things that uh, has always intrigued me 
Again, it's in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. It was a favorite of Brother Hagin's, and so it, got, it uh, garnered my attention. Anything that was a favorite of his was something I paid attention to. It says, Son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thy heart. Verse 22 says, For they are life. My words are life unto those that find them. And health to all their flesh. There's a discovery process in the word. There's a revelation that comes when we meet the conditions and take the word of God into our hearts. Now I want you to turn with me to, uh, we've looked at this before as well, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Talking about the end times, Paul wrote to Timothy, beginning in verse 1, it said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. This word perilous means strength reducing. It's important for us to know that the devil's operation against us as he makes war on the church is to attempt at least to deplete our strength, to reduce our strength. Paul wrote to the church and said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Then he told us how to do it by putting on the armor of God. Or in other words, gain knowledge about what belongs to us. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. I think one thing that, um, well, one thing I caught myself doing is some years ago in reading this passage of Scripture in my own private time, I was looking for someone to have all these traits. I was looking for all of these traits to be manifested in individuals. But that's not what it's trying to tell us. It's telling us that people will operate in any number of these characteristics, take on these characteristics for themselves. Now, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe it is, he talked about before Jesus comes, there would be what the King James uh, translates as a falling away. Now, this is the, the word that can mean one of two things. It can either mean a turning away the, the word is, uh, in the Greek, the word is apostasia. It can mean a turning away of doctrine or from the truth. But it can also mean a catching away, being caught up. It's what the church uses, the rapture, uh, the foundation for the rapture doctrine. Because the word rapture isn't in the scripture anywhere. But we know that God has a habit of taking people up. The Bible says Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. He caught him up. Elijah was caught up. You remember that the chariots of fire and the, the horses from, from heaven came down 
and caught him up, and Elisha was there to see it. Jesus was caught up in the sight of the disciples after he had given them the Great Commission and instructed them what to do as far as the church was concerned. God's in the, in the business or in the habit of catching people up. Well, this word that's used that the King James translates falling away can mean either catching up or catching away or it can mean falling away from sound doctrine. Now, Paul could, with his knowledge of the Greek language and his knowledge of God, there are different words that could have been used that would mean one or the other rather than one that means both. In other words, if he was just talking about being caught up or, or raptured, he could have used a word that meant that exclusively. Or if he was talking about falling away from sound doctrine, he could have used a word that meant that exclusively. But he didn't. Now, like I said, I'm always asking questions. If he could have found something that meant one or the other, but not both, why didn't he use that? Unless he meant both. Well, we certainly see that in this list of Characteristics in 2 Timothy chapter 3, these are certainly things that fall away from sound doctrine. Notice the last thing that we read in verse 5, where it says, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. That tips us off that he's talking about the church. We wouldn't expect the, the sinners the unsaved, to have a form of godliness. We wouldn't expect them to have an opinion one way or the other on the power of the gospel. He's talking about the church. He's talking about characteristics that will invade the church in the last days. And I should say also that this verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, is the exact opposite of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Where he said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. That word witness means with proof or evidence. He's talking about the power of God. And then shall the end come, he went on to say. So you've got a section of the church that's going to be operating in what looks to be godly, but denying the power thereof. At the very same time that the glory of God is being made manifest, certainly through the church, so that the world can see and know that Jesus is the risen Lord. When I start looking at deception and recognize that the knowledge of the truth is the only thing that will keep a person from being deceived, Therefore, that's why it's so important for us to know what the Word says. You remember Jesus said to those that believed on him in John chapter 8, about verse 31, he said, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth comes from the Word. The Word of God is truth. And the knowledge of that truth will keep you free. Well, that would include freedom from deception, wouldn't it? Certainly. 
Well, when we see the things that are going on around us in the world, and so much of the things that the devil is doing is wrapped up in politics, how can you really identify what the devil's doing without having an understanding of what the political scene is that, that encamps us or encircles us? I know that church people aren't accustomed to being told, talked to about politics. There's a lot of the deception of the enemy for a long time that has had the idea that the church and politics shouldn't mix. And certainly not many politicians identify that the church and the politics do mix. But it's part of the world that we live in. It's part of what the Bible identifies as under Satan's control. So if we take a back seat to the, to the primary place or primary means that the Bible tells us that the, that the devil operates and exercises his influence, then where does that leave us other than being powerless? We all know the story of Moses, how that God appeared to him in a burning bush and talked to him about returning to Egypt. He had left because he was guilty of murdering an Egyptian. He spent 40 years on the backside of the devil, uh, of the desert. The backside of the desert. I'm not sure what the backside of the desert is, but it must be a pretty tough place. And then God appears to him when he's 80 years old. And folks, really, his life just really began at, at 80, where most people were giving up on life. That's the point where God really started with his. So he told Moses to go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. You remember the story? The Bible goes into great detail to tell us about how the interaction between Moses and Pharaoh took place. That was after God finally got him to go. Moses gave excuse after excuse after excuse for why he shouldn't go and why he shouldn't obey God. One of those things was he said, I am slow of tongue and slow of speech. Now, if you look up those words, there's really not a clear definition of what he's trying to say. But there was some type of speech impediment or something that made him a poor public speaker that he identifies. If we were to relate that to the time that we live in today, it might have been the equivalent of Moses saying, God, I have a highly active Twitter account. Because that's the complaint that everybody has about Trump. We don't like how he communicates. We don't like the manner in which he communicates or the things that he says or the way that he says them. Interesting that God picked somebody that was also criticized for his communication abilities. Lest you think this is just an isolated case, Paul said pretty much the same thing about himself. When writing to the Corinthians, he said, I know what you say about me. How that I'm a poor speaker and that my letters are weighty, but my appearance is weak. We don't know what Paul's situation was there either. 
but we do know that, and historical documents bear this out as well, that Paul was not a great public speaker. Folks, if you think about it, the real value of Paul's ministry to us, or the prevailing value of Paul's ministry to us, wasn't the things that he said in public, but the things that he wrote. Interesting that God would choose somebody in that case too. Well, so Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, why should I listen to you? And then the plagues begin. Over a period of 12 to 18 months, there were 10, well, really nine plagues. And then the 10th thing that happened was the death of the firstborn. And after these 10 things take place, Pharaoh finally relents and says, go and don't let us ever see you again. So Israel departs from Egypt, which is a type of us departing from sin in the world. And they come to the place where in just a few days, Pharaoh's grief takes over and he sends his army out after the people of Israel. Now Israel is the greatest military force on the face of the earth at that time. So Egypt, the armies of Egypt, the armies of Pharaoh, bear down on Israel, who has their back to the Red Sea, and on either side, mountains where they can't escape. There's nowhere for them to go. You remember the story about how God tells Moses, Moses tells the people, first of all, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. When the people start crying out, where are we going to go? We're going to be slaughtered. Then Moses turns to God and says, what do we do here? God says something really interesting. He says, why, why criest thou unto me? Now, folks, that seems like the perfect time to cry out to God to me. But God is showing something that the church never has really gotten a hold of, I don't believe. And that is, when God created the earth, he gave man authority in this earth. When man fell in the Garden of Eden, he didn't lose his authority. He lost some of the connection with God that was the source of his authority. But man still had authority on the earth. So when God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? He then directs Moses to do something about the condition he's in. He says, stretch forth your rod over the sea. And he does, and the water, depart, the water parts. The glory of God moves behind Israel to separate him, separate the children of Israel from the armies of Pharaoh and over a period of time, a matter of a couple of hours, the children of Israel pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. When they get to the other side, or close to the other side, the Bible tells us that the presence of God, the pillar of fire that separated Israel from Egypt, was lifted, and Pharaoh's army went out after them. They got in the middle of the Red Sea, and whereas this was a place where Israel had walked over on dry ground, it wasn't dry for Egypt. It says their chariot wheels got stuck in the mud 
And then the waters came back and, and, and drowned the greatest military force on the face of the earth. Now, folks, I want you to realize something, and I, I want to point out the time frame involved here so that you get the point. The plagues in Egypt took anywhere from 12 to 18 months, according to most historians and most Bible scholars. And that seems reasonable. It may have been a little bit less than that, but if so, it wasn't much. So these people have been seeing for a year or a year and a half the power of God on display in great measure. I mean, there are always some skeptics that might have gotten past the first one or two plagues. But by the time that these, the tenth plague takes place and then the drowning of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, how in the world could they deny that this was the power of the creator of the universe at work? Well, after this great victory, Israel rejoices. But then it's within a matter of a, just a few days, maybe a week, on the other side of the Red Sea where Israel is on their way to the promised land, they come to a place where the waters are bitter. It's a place called Marah. And it says they begin to murmur against Moses. They begin to murmur against Moses, saying, Moses, what did you bring us out here to die of thirst for? Now, it's unclear whether the waters of Marrow were just bitter, they tasted bad, or if it was poisonous. There's an argument for either case. But either way it goes, they couldn't or wouldn't drink the waters. And God shows Moses what to do. He cuts down a tree which represents the cross of Jesus and throws it in the middle of the water. It sweetens the water and makes it able to be drunk. And then God tells the, the people of Israel, first time he identifies himself to the people of Israel, he says, I am the Lord that he lift thee. Jehovah Rapha. The next chapter is Exodus chapter 16 tells us that the people are murmuring against Moses again because they don't have enough to eat or they don't like what they have to eat and so God gives them manna. And you remember the story about how the instructions God gives concerning the keeping of the, uh, the manna. It only lasts for one day but on the fifth day of the week they gather enough for two days to cover the Sabbath day. The next chapter, Exodus chapter 17, tells us they come to a place called Horeb, and they don't have any water there either. And so they murmur against Moses. Now, folks, I would have thought that Moses would be such a celebrity that nobody would ever dare say anything against the guy. I mean, how do you complain about a guy that did what God did through him? They saw him stretch forth his hand. They didn't see the power of God. They saw Moses stretch forth his rod over the water in the Red Sea part. We know what was going on behind the scenes, but they didn't. They saw these things take place at Moses' command. They saw fire and hail rain from heaven because Moses said so. 
They saw the Nile River turn into blood because Moses said so. They saw darkness cover the, man, the land because Moses said so. And it covered everywhere in Egypt except where the Israelites were. And they're murmuring against this guy. They're complaining about their leader. What would it have taken to make these guys happy? We never find out because they never get happy. <laughs> so here in Exodus chapter 17 at Horeb, they're complaining, murmuring against Moses because they don't have anything to, to drink. And so God tells him to stand before a certain rock with the stick in his hand and strike the rock and enough water comes out through the rock to satisfy millions of people and their herds and livestock and so forth. Now the time frame in this stuff is what fascinates me. It would be one thing if there were 40 years had gone by and they hadn't seen any miracles of God or something like that and so then they start complaining. I understand that. That's human nature. But within weeks or months of having seen the greatest display of God's power on the face of the earth demonstrated time and time again then we come to Numbers chapter 13 turn there with me if you will please I use Numbers chapter 13 a lot if you're here very often you know that to be true because it's one of the foundation stones in how God works how the devil works and how we can navigate through the minefield of this earth to walk in victory beginning in verse 1 it says the Lord spake unto Moses saying send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan which I give unto the children of Israel of every tribe of their fathers shall you send a man everyone a ruler among them now notice what God says. God says the land's already theirs. He reiterates that. He said that over and over and over again in their wilderness wanderings. At this point in time, it's probably about two and a half years since they've been uh, set loose from Egypt. About two and a half years since they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. So God says... Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. And so Moses sent them forth. It tells us the names of all the people. The only two that are really of any note are in verse 6. The tribe of Judah gave Caleb as one of the spies. And verse 8, the tribe of Ephraim gave Joshua, the son of Nun, as their representative. Verse 17, And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said unto them, Get you up this way southward, and go up into the mountain, and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, wherein they be strong or weak, few or many. They know people are there. God's already said over and over and over and over again. In fact, it began when Moses was talking to God, or God was speaking to Moses through the burning bush. He identifies the land, the promised land, as being inhabited by the Amalekites and the Anakites, uh, Anakites and the Canaanites and others. 
Shouldn't be a surprise to find out there are people living there. God's been saying that all along. The only question is, are they strong or weak? Are they few or many? And what the land is, they want to check out the land that they may dwell there in, wherein it be a good land or a bad land, what cities there be that dwell, that they that dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether there be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and ye be of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of first ripe grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin and to Rehob, as the men cometh to Harmoth. And they ascended by the south and came into Hebron, where a bunch of other people are, in verse 23. And they came into the brook of Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bear it between two upon a staff. Must have been a big cluster. And they brought the pomegranates and the, the figs. The place was called the brook of Eskel because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel and to the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us and surely it flows with milk and honey and this is the fruit of it. Just like God said, it's a land that flows with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Malachites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. Now, folks, up to this point, they have only relayed information. It was the, the, the information that God sent them into the land to get. They're just describing the, the circumstances. But apparently, the description of the circumstances is stirring the people up somewhat because it says in verse 30, Caleb stilled the people before Moses. He stilled the people before Moses. The best time to make a decision is when you're quiet. The devil wants to rev you up to make a bad decision based on emotion. Now, emotions are great. I rejoice with those of you that have them. But they're very poor, make a very poor foundation to make a decision on. So Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel saying, The land through which we have gone to search it, it is the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. Can I ask you a question? Did God not know this was going to happen? Did God not know what the children of Israel would do when the 12 spies came back with their report? Why in the world did God do something that he knew would result in the people turning against him? 
because God doesn't override a man's will. It has to be their choice. It has to be their decision to take hold of the promised land. Caleb and Joshua are willing, to, uh, ready and able to go. The ten spies are not. This is the first time that we have any record or any evidence of the people of God voting. And that's exactly what they do. They vote with their voice. Their voice, which is and which always has been, which always will be, the exercise of authority. The means whereby mankind exercises its authority, his authority on the earth. The congregation lifted their voice and joined in with the report of the ten spies who said, we can't do it because the people are too strong. Caleb and Joshua, who see the same thing they do, said, we saw the walled cities, we saw the people. They are, the people are stronger than we are militarily, but we're not here as an army to begin with. God's on our side, we can do it. One's a report of evil. The evil report is a report of doubt or unbelief. The good report of Caleb and Joshua is a report of faith. What do these people do? Now, these are the same people that murmured just days after they were delivered through the passing of the Red Sea. These are the same people that murmured against Moses when they didn't have what they wanted to eat. These are the same people that murmured against Moses in Horeb when there was no water to drink and Moses struck the rock and water came out. What do they do? Verse 2. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, We need another president. <laughs> Joe of the tribe Biden. And let us return into Egypt, where we'll lose the freedom that we've already gained by the hand of God. And where the nation state of Egypt, even though it's been decimated by the plagues, will be responsible for our every need and our every want. How is that not relevant for today? Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we have passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord. Apparently it's not too late to turn this around. Apparently they can still do something about it. And take the promised land. Neither fear ye the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But. And here's where it turns. 
All the congregation bade stone them with stones. Now, folks, that'll fix all their problems right there. If we just kill Moses, if we just get rid of the person that God has chosen to lead the people, his people, then that'll fix everything. Problems that have been made over decades of choices, bad choices, bad decisions. If we can just get rid of this one leader. How is it not relevant to today? But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed unto them? We know that Moses in, intercedes before the people. He asks God to pardon their sin. And God promises that he does. And in the two verses in the rest of Numbers chapter 14 that I have to read without commenting on much. But at least I have to read it. There are two places in verse 21 and verse 28 where God says something in such a way that identifies it as an eternal, unchanging law of God. As truly as I live, verse 21, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. As truly as I live, how does God live? Eternally and unchanging. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Here's why God's upset with the children of Israel. Here's why he wants to to wipe them out and start over with Moses. Because God is disappointed because he wanted to show his glory upon the children of Israel in the taking of the promised land. We sometimes cry out to God and want him to show himself strong on our behalf. But God wants to show himself strong on our behalf more than we want him to. How many confrontations how many fights do we shy away from knowing that God wants to show himself strong at least this shows it to us then in verse 28 he says something else along the same line as truly as I live saith the Lord as they have spoken in my ears well let me read it verse 28 say unto them God says to Moses tell them as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your words determine what you have. That's an eternal law of God and it never changes. As truly as I live, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. So the children of Israel go into the wilderness. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. What happens during those 40 years? Well, halfway through in Numbers chapter 16, we come to a situation that is very relevant to today as well. This is 20 years after what we just read in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And it's Korah's rebellion. Verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, and the sons of Beleth, Peleth, Sons of Reuben took men 
And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation and men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses. These were the first never Mosesers. <laughs> Human nature hasn't changed. People haven't changed. Circumstances and conditions may have, but people are always the same. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift you yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. They're complaining about his position. They're complaining that he has lifted himself up to make himself some great man, a great person in the eyes of all of Israel. When Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And he spake unto Korah and unto all of his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he has chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This do, take you censers, Korah and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord, Tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord does choose, he shall be holy. You take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. And Moses spoke unto Korah, Here I pray you, you sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. Apparently these guys are trying to better their station of their own position, even though they have a position of serving God in the temple of the tabernacle. Let's skip down to verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness except thou make yourself altogether a prince over us? They're saying this is what this has all about, been about. We're in the wilderness so that you can make yourself to be somebody. Notice verse 14. Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? I want you to see something here, folks. The only reason Israel is wandering around in the wilderness, and again, this is 20 years after Numbers chapter 13 where they refused to go into the promised land. 20 years later, the people are saying, you're the one that kept us out of the land of milk and honey. The Bible record clearly shows that it was their own choice and their own unbelief. But they're blaming it on Moses. Now, folks, you do understand that every problem that ever has faced America has been Trump's fault, don't you? <laughs> you do know that, don't you? It has nothing to do with previous administrations or laws passed or laws that weren't passed. It has nothing to do with poor leadership in any way whatsoever. The answer to all of life's problems is just get rid of Trump. What's the difference in that and what these people are saying? 
Tell me the difference. Why did the Bible give us a record of this? If not to learn and to recognize what human behavior and how human nature works. How is the Bible, how can the Bible in any way not be relevant to the days that we live in today? The devil hadn't changed. His means of attack against the people of God hasn't changed. How can this not be relevant? So these two people that Moses sends for, after accusing him of being the source of all of Israel's problems, they just flat out say, we will not come up. And Moses was very wroth and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow, and take every man his censer and put incense in them. This represents the atonement, by the way. And bring ye before the Lord every man his censer, 250 censers thou also and Aaron, each one of you his censers. Let me skip down through some of this for the sake of time. Let's take up the reading in verse 27. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan and Abiram, on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents with their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all of these works. For I have not done them of my own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they may be visited, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth opens up her mouth, and swallows them up with all that, that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then shall you understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Pretty fair test. And it came to pass as he made an end of speaking all these words that the ground clave asunder that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all they that appertained unto them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them. For they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out of a fire, there came out a fire from the Lord, and consumed the two hundred and fifty men that offered incense. This is a pretty eventful day. And all of Israel sees it. All of Israel identifies very clearly that God really is upon Moses and Aaron. Verse 41, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. <laughs> Folks, if this was a movie plot, nobody would believe it. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the, the tabernacle of the congregation and behold the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. 
And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Here's his chance to be rid of these folks. Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put a fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord and the plague is begun. Now folks, the plague, just like the the plague of Egypt, which the Bible talks about as being the death of the firstborn, is not sickness or disease. God doesn't have sickness or disease. He He doesn't use it. There are times where, even when he was talking to Moses in the, through the burning bush, where one of the signs he gave Moses was Moses stuck his hand in his, his cloak and brought it out, and it was leprous. But then he put his hand back in his cloak and brought it out again, and it was clean. That causes a little bit of trouble for us until we recognize that that would, is easily identified or easily explained as apart from the blood of Jesus, everybody deserves every consequence of the, law, of the law of sin and death. So it would be very simple for God just to simply remove his hand of protection from Moses for an instant. And the result would be, among other things, sickness and disease. But then God shows his power and his ability to to recover or reprotect Moses by healing him from that disease that should be due him and should be due every one of us apart from Jesus. But apart from that, a couple of situations like that, there is never a time where God used sickness and disease to bring destruction on any of his people. The angel of death that went through on the Passover, the first Passover, which was the death of the firstborn, He didn't bring sickness to the household. Even though it's called a plague, and even though here it's called a plague, it's very simply one moment someone took a breath, the next moment they didn't. And so this is the plague that has already begun. This is the plague that the Bible tells us about that has begun, that Moses recognizes. He recognizes that the only response or the only uh, cure for this situation is to make an atonement. That atonement is a type of Christ. And so it says, Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague had begun upon the people. And he put the incense, put on the incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stayed. The plague, meant, the plague being stayed meant the plague ended because God saw the atonement that was made. Now, if the plague had stayed on just one more person, if it had continued in any way whatsoever, in any measure whatsoever, then it would be improper and it would be false for it to, the Bible to claim that the plague was stayed or ended. And it's interesting to note that it was ended for everybody. It wasn't just ended for the people that were less guilty and what they murmured in, uh, compared to the other people that were more guilty. 
that atonement was represented Jesus' work on the cross. Stayed the plague which was due each and every one of us, every person on the face of the earth, apart from Jesus. But 14,700 people died that day. How could these people not recognize that God was upon Moses? How could these people not? This is deception to the greatest degree, in my opinion. How could they not recognize after all the things that they, they just saw? The day before, they saw the earth open up and swallow the people who said that they were holy instead of Moses. They saw fire consume the 250 princes that stood with Moses or stood with Korah against Moses. What are they complaining about the next day? Human nature hadn't changed, folks. I've got one more incident I want to show you, and that's in Numbers chapter 21. Nineteen years go by. There were 20 years between the children of Israel refusing to go into the promised land and Numbers chapter 16 where it talks about Korah's rebellion. Now another 19 years go by. That means there's, this is the year before, a very short time before they come back into the promised land. And here's what takes place. Beginning in verse 4. And they journey from Mount Horal by the way of the Red Sea to encompass or circle the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Here's the devil distracting Israel because of the difficulty of their circumstances. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this, this, this light bread, this manna. They're complaining about the same thing that they did in Numbers chapter 13. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? Yeah, you gave us water, but things are still tough. We didn't like the food that we had, so you gave us this man, and we're sick of that now. There are just no more recipes for manna. God provided for them in everything that they said they needed. But they still murmur against God and against Moses because his times are tough. In the middle of a long fight, you've really got to make sure that you keep yourself on the right track so that your strength is not reduced. God knows you can take it for as long as it takes. We may not always know that. But there's one thing for sure that can convince us of it, and that is for things taking a long time. A lot of people are strong in faith if they can get, it, get their answer in a week. Others still are strong in faith if they can get their answer in a month. Some, you don't find a lot of these, but you find some that are strong in faith even if it takes years. But when year after year after year goes by, 
That's when you really find out what you're made of. God's word isn't any different 20 years from now as it is from today. What God has done for us and what he has promised never changes no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how long you've been believing for it, no matter how long you've been looking to see the salvation of the Lord. God's word never changes. Do you? That's what it's all about, folks. If the devil can get you distracted or hurting bad enough so that you change, that's the only way he can stop you from having whatever you say. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Without going into a lot of detail and research about this, the Bible tells us that the, the land of the wilderness that they were wandering in was full of fiery serpents. And here where it says the Lord sent it, uh, the people of Israel, Dr. Robert Young, who was the foremost Bible scholar in his day, the number one authority on the Hebrew language, number two authority on the Greek language, said that the, the Hebrew language has a verb that's in the permissive tense that the English language doesn't have. And so the translators, in most cases, translate this permissive verb in the causative sense. This is an example where it says the Lord sent fiery serpents. It just simply means that because of their own sin, their own wrongdoing, the hand of protection of God from these fiery serpents was lifted, and these fiery serpents came into the camp. The people say the same thing. They know this to be true when they come to their senses. Verse 7, therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. They understand, folks. They understand that if they walk in the commandments of God, if they'll keep their eyes on the right things, if they'll speak the right words, they know that things will go well for them. Here when the fiery serpents come into the camp, they recognize that something's wrong and they recognize they're the cause of it. So they said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass. Notice it's not a lamb, but it's a serpent. It represents Jesus on the cross. Jesus even said so in John chapter 3. He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, he identified this experienced this event with his own crucifixion he said that's a type of me notice it was not a brass uh, I'm sorry it was not a, a lamb on the pole but it was a serpent Jesus became sin for you and the serpent the serpent of brass is the example or the illustration for sin and death for the devil himself even So Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, there's a little bit more to this than just looking at the serpent of brass on the pole. Notice it says when he beheld it. In other words, it's not just a, the words that are used here indicate that it wasn't just a quick glance. 
but he had to keep his eyes on the pole. Now, why is that important? Because the snakes are still at their feet. So what are they going to look at? They're going to look at the snakes crawling through the camp, or they're going to keep their eyes on the pole, that which represents Jesus. Notice it's available for anyone that was bitten. The atonement that Jesus made that delivers us from the the fiery serpents here in their case, but represents any and all sickness and, and disease which is of the devil, is for anybody that will keep his eyes on Jesus on the cross and recognize that the work of Jesus on the cross was not just for sin, but also for the healing of your body. Now, folks, I want us to close with one thing, and I'm sorry for going a little bit long here, but I only preach one time a week nowadays, so I have to get it all in. I want you to look with me to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14 is after the children of Israel go into the promised land. Moses goes off the scene and Joshua is the leader of the children of Israel. God performs miracle after miracle after a miracle for them to take hold of the promised land. We find out the people in the promised land were, not, were afraid of them and have been afraid of Israel for 40 years because they still remember that God parted the Red Sea for them. Israel forgot it, but the enemies of Israel didn't. And so after the, the land is conquered, the promised land is conquered, then Joshua is in charge of dividing the inheritance between the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, really, 11, since Levi didn't get an inheritance because they're the priesthood. You remember Caleb and Joshua were the two that said, we can go in and take the land. We hear a lot about Joshua because of he, him being... Uh, taking the leadership of the children of Israel. But we don't hear much about Caleb. What happened to him? Let's start reading in verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenezites, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Now he's talking about what God said in Numbers chapter 14. Because Caleb and Joshua kept their heart on me, and followed him, followed him, trusted him wholly, they would enter into the promised land. They were the only people of the generation from age 20 and up that had not died in the 40 years in the wilderness. We don't know exactly how long they've, uh, it's been since they took the promised land from the beginning of the book of Joshua to here we have in uh, chapter 14. We don't know exactly how long it is, but we know it's been 40 some odd years since Numbers chapter 14 took place. Forty years ago, here's, here's Caleb talking about himself. Verse 7, 40 years ago was I when Moses, when the servant, when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made, my, made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years. So now he's eighty-five. He was forty when he was one of the spies that went in to spy out the land in Numbers 14. Now he's eighty-five. Now the Lord... Behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake unto the, 
this word unto Moses while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the anaclims were there, and the cities that were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me. Notice they're saying the same thing now as they said 45 years ago. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, Hebron, for an inheritance. Folks, I want you to notice something. We focus on the fact that the children of Israel believed the evil report. And they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But just as God said of, jo of Joshua and Caleb, when Caleb was 40 years old in Numbers chapter 14, that they wholly followed the Lord, Caleb has continued to wholly follow the Lord for the last 45 years. It renewed his strength. It kept him strong, kept him healthy. And he said of his own will, I'm just as strong now as I was when I was 45 or 40. Now that I'm 85, I'm just as strong as I was when I was 40. I want you to understand something. Phrases like that used to freak me out, wholly following the Lord, because I was under such condemnation and guilt from wrong teaching and denominationalism and all that other kind of stuff. Those looked like unattainable goals. I tried to remember, thinking about it this last week, I tried to remember the last time that I was in doubt. And the closest thing I can come up with is 1976. Now, I've made a lot of mistakes over the years. There have been times where I've taken steps outside of love. There have been times where I've let my anger get the best of me. But when it comes to just refusing to believe the word of God, That was 1976, 44 years ago. One of the things that attracted me to the teaching of Brother Hagen is that he taught with authority. He taught about authority, and he taught with authority. And one of the things that I got early on, rightly so, how could you not? One of the things I got right, uh, early on was the principle, the eternal and unchanging law of God that you have what you say. And I cannot remember, specifically, I cannot remember the last time I said anything against God's word. I know it was at least 44 years. And I realize that it may not be the same measure as what Caleb and Joshua were talking about, because it would certainly be subjective. But I can say with absolute certainty, without any sense of condemnation, knowing full well that it's the truth, convinced of the truth, that for 44 years, maybe even more, I have wholly followed the Lord. It's an attainable thing when you accept the, the very few principles of God in his relationship with mankind. When you accept that God's word is true, 
even though you may not understand it. Now, I certainly understand a lot more now than I did 44 years ago. From where I started 44 years ago, I never would have believed that I could say that I wholly followed the Lord. But God judges you by your heart, not by your physical actions. Jesus said you can judge a tree by the fruit that it produces. Not by the look of the leaves, but by the fruit that it produces. God has made a way for us to walk in that kind. And and the thing about it is, it brings me such peace. I've never thought about it before until this week. I've had so much peace. Here's just something else that the Lord reminded me that I thought that I'd never have or never attain or never be in this position. And here I am. It didn't come with any fanfare. If he hadn't showed me, I probably still wouldn't know or recognize it, realize it. But God's just looking for people whose hearts turn toward him. He's already made you righteous. You'll never be more righteous than you were the day that you were born again. You don't grow in righteousness. You're already there. You grow in understanding of what it is and what it means. But you'll never be more righteous than you are today. That may strike fear in some people's hearts. The devil wants it to strike fear in your heart. But it's meant to be a comfort. You are in a better place with God than you even know. This is what people of faith can expect. Caleb was kept out of the promised land. It would have been nice if God had let him and Joshua go on in on their own. But because of the people that they associated with, not of their own doing, but they were robbed 40 years that they could have enjoyed in the presence of God in the promised land. But that didn't keep God from blessing them in the meantime. That didn't keep God from honoring his word for them even though they weren't in the promised land. God's got you right where he wants you to be. And we need to keep our eyes open. And remember, one of the unchanging and eternal laws of God is the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you are righteous and that our righteousness is of you. We have such a tendency to judge ourselves by our own actions. But you judge us through the word of God. You judge us by the blood of Jesus. And through the word of God and by the blood of Jesus, we are righteous. We have right relationship with you, Father. You are always on our side. And because we believe your word, we take sides with you. Thank you, Father, for seeing us through. Thank you for giving us wisdom to see things as they really are. Thank you, Father, for bestowing on us wisdom and revelation. That the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we know what is the hope of your calling and what is the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. And for showing us the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. We love you, Father. We thank you for the glory of the Lord in these last days.
we thank you, Father, for manifesting your power, manifesting your goodness. We thank you, Father, for showing us just who you really are. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. We live in perilous times, folks, but they're exciting times. We're just in the edge of what God's going to do.